This is Pastor Rick from Hocassin Baptist Church. You are listening to the final sermon in our Jesus of Suburbia series, entitled, Building the Suburban House. Well, it's an honor to have you here this morning. Today is the last of our series um, in the series entitled, Jesus of Suburbia. And if you've been able to join us over the last few weeks, you know that we've been learning about how to better follow Jesus right here in suburbia. And we've been doing so by studying the book of Amos alongside the later teachings of Jesus. And I thank you for your encouraging words to me during the course of this series and and for the ways that many of you have been attempting to put into practice some of what we've been talking about. Uh, I've been trying to do so myself uh, in my own life, of course, uh, but also even as a pastor and thinking about the church, uh, some of these lures that we've been talking about in suburbia, this lure of comfort and of achievement and of convenience, they are, they're just as prevalent in the suburban church um, as they are in the suburban household. And it's very difficult sometimes, even as a pastor, not to say, well, I want my church to be comfortable and convenient, everybody to be happy and everybody to like it and us to be hip and cool and all those kind of things, when in reality, I just want our church to be faithful uh, to Jesus. So... I've been working through that even in uh, how we view our church. And uh, so thank you for uh, your thoughtfulness uh, during the course of this series. Now, some of you like pictures. You like books with pictures. I know, you can admit it. When you were a kid, you always wanted the book with pictures. And when you, went, when you were in like fourth grade and you had to choose a library book, you would always go through all the books and you'd flip through them because you want to find the one that has the most pictures. And then you went to high school and college and graduate school, and maybe you were getting your Ph.D., but there was something in you that still liked pictures because the more pictures, the less you have to read, right? So you have this big old textbook, and you start paging through it going, I hope there's a lot of pictures, right? You still do it. Well, today's sermon is for you because we are going to look at four word pictures painted by Jesus and by Amos. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look at our first word picture. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verses 24 through 27. Now these are the words of Jesus that he speaks at the tail end of what's now known as the Sermon on the Mount. So he closes uh, his sermon on the Sermon on the Mount with these verses, with these words, with this picture that he paints for us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. If you grew up going to church, you know that there's multiple little songs that accompany this little parable. The wise man built his house upon the rock. It usually ends with a crash. We can all scream, crash, together. And it's one of those neat kind of pictures that children can really understand and absorb 
But what we have to be cautious of as adults is that we don't leave stories like this in the preschool classroom and assume that they're just for children, because they're not. Jesus is clearly talking here not about building a physical house that you live in, but about building your life. And what are you building your life on, irrelevant of where you might live? For no matter where you live, you're still building a life by how you live and how you act and what you do and say and how you think. And so clearly Jesus is pushing us to understand this picture as being two people who are building a life. And one is building it on a solid foundation and the other is building it on sand. One will stand, one will not. Now, during the course of writing any kind of sermon, there's a lot of edits that go along. And originally, at this point in the sermon, I was going to say, of course, everyone who reads this passage naturally thinks of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. However, I mentioned this to my wife, and she said to me that she's often read this passage and has never thought of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and she's pretty convinced that no one else has either. And so the new sentence is, whenever I read this passage, I think of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and after this sermon, you will too. <clears throat> the construction of, now, of what is now the Leaning Tower of Pisa began way back in 1173, and within, a, uh, within just putting on a few stories of the tower, it began to lean. Well, the construction of the tower stretched over 200 years or so because of all these little wars that they had to go fight with Genoa and other Italian towns along the way. And then we get back to it at various times and put on a few more levels. And oftentimes they would try to fix this lean, which was slighter then. They would try to fix the various problems, obviously, to no success. One creative attempt was made in 1272 when building the middle levels of making one side of the floor higher than the other to try to make it start sort of curving, which means that there's actually a curve in the Leaning Tower of Pisa towards the sky. Well, the tower still leaned then, and it still leans now. And for me, this is a living picture of this parable of Jesus of what it means to build on a foundation that's not firm and what can happen. We've talked a lot about the terms and conditions of suburbia, what suburbia asks you to found, to found your life on, on achievement, on consumption, on comfort, and on self-preservation and independence. And I've been proposing to you all along that these terms and conditions are problematic for our lives, and I propose to you to use Jesus' images today, that if we find, found our life, if we make those conditions in suburbia, of suburbia our foundation, then the building of our lives will begin to sink. They'll begin to tilt, they'll begin to sway, and eventually they will fall. But Jesus is explicit about what the solid ground is. He says, if you follow, if you listen to and follow my teachings, you will have a house built on a rock. And if we look back through and glance through the Sermon on the Mount, we see that a lot of his teachings 
are very similar to the teachings we found in Amos and very counter to the terms and conditions of suburbia. Blessed are the merciful. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Give to the needy without arrogance. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You can't serve both God and money. Do not worry. Seek first God's kingdom. Do not judge. God will judge. These are all the different areas that Jesus has covered. And he says, if you build your life on these teachings, you will have a firm foundation, a firm perspective, a true worldview. And your house will remain upright, and it will handle the storms of life. And these are guarantees that the terms of suburbia can't offer. And so we return now to the question that we began with five weeks ago, and that is, by whose terms and conditions are you living your life? By what terms and conditions? Are, those, are they those of God or those of suburbias? If you page backward to the book of Amos, you'll find that he paints some pictures too. We're going to look at Amos chapter 7 so you can find your way there. As you turn... I'm going to give you a few pieces of information about Amos. We've been studying his prophecies for the last four weeks, and we haven't talked about the, the prophet yet. So let me give you a moment to think about who Amos was. We know very little about Amos, and what we do know is actually from his book. We do know that he was a sheep herder and a fig farmer. So he's not somebody from a prophetic school. He wasn't a, from a family of priests. He was a simple sheep herder who's been, who was called by God to preach. And interestingly and uniquely about Amos, he was from Tekoa, which is just south of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. But Amos was called to preach in Israel, the country north of where he was. So when Amos did his preaching, he would trek up about 20 miles up past Jerusalem, across the border into Israel, into the hills of Bethel, and he would do his prophesying. He would talk about the coming destruction on Israel. And he got the response from the leadership of Israel. They said, go home. Literally, they said, go back to Judah. Isn't there a nice dinner planned for you there? Go home to Judah with your prophecies. We don't want to hear them here. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know why they didn't want to hear them, because they were hard teachings and hard prophecies. If you'd like to place Amos in history, he preached during the reign of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam uh, was the king of Israel about 40 to 60 years prior to, to Israel being taken captive. So about 40 to 60 years prior to the captivity in 722, Amos was preaching, and he was a contemporary of Hosea, uh, another prophet from the Bible. All right, with that being said, let's look at Amos 7. We'll read verses 1 through 9. Again, we have some pictures being painted for us. Amos 7. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing a swarm of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob, or Israel, survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. 
The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. We have three word pictures, three visions here in the book of Amos. And the first are similar in that they show devastation, annihilation, complete catastrophe. Imagine the whole room that we have here filled with locusts. And they're on their way out into the community. And Amos sees this. He looks out into the community. He sees that the first harvest has been taken, which means that the taxed harvest, the harvest that goes to the king, has already been taken. And now the harvest that's about to be taken is that which will provide food for all the people. And he knows that if the locusts come through and swarm and eat all of the food, that there'll be mass starvation and death in all of Israel. It's a picture of complete destruction. And Amos prays and says, God, please, please do not. God listens and says he will not. But then he shows another image. And this one's a fire, a fire so intense that it even burns up the water that's in the low places. Another picture of annihilation, of destruction. And Amos sees it and he says, no, Lord, Lord, please relent. And the Lord does and says, this will not happen either. But then we come to a last image. And the last image seems significantly less intense than the first two. You have locusts, you have fire, and you get a plumb line. A plumb line is simply a string with a weight at the end of it. You would hang it on on there, you'd use it against the side of a wall or a structure of some sort to make sure it's not leaning one way or another. If it was straight, it's called to be true to plumb. And so the Lord appears on top of a wall holding a plumb line. This might have seemed somewhat encouraging to Amos after the two images he just saw. How bad can this be? But what God says is, you know, I built a nation. And I built it using the plumb line of the law. The plumb line of righteousness. But now when I take out this plumb line, I see that it's leaning. It's leaning that the nation has become bent and crooked and falling. God had established the nation of Israel with a measuring line of righteousness. Commands such as honor the prophets and avoid false gods and avoid corrupt leadership, remember the Sabbath, care for the poor. And yet, we find in Amos that they violated every one of those commands. In Amos 2.4, they're led away by false gods. In 2.7, they trample the heads of the poor. In 2.12, they command prophets not to prophesy. In 5.12, they take bribes. In 8.5, they disregard the Sabbath. So God sees his nation. He gets out the plumb line. It drops down. He holds it up to the nation's righteousness and says, you are found wanting. I need to rebuild the wall. I need to rebuild this nation. And he rebuilds it by tearing it down before putting it up again. 
Well, these three images show us two aspects of God. First, we certainly see God's patience, that God responds to the the pleas and the prayers of his people, and that he's long-suffering. In the first two images, God listens to Amos and does not bring judgment. But in the third, we find that eventually there will be a judgment. Eventually, God will say, the corruption has become too great, the evil is too great, it's too crooked, I've got to straighten it. It is time for judgment. The harvest will be ripe. And so Israel would be judged like we will be judged and give account for the life that we have built. And so Jesus and Amos both use sort of this building imagery, one of a house built on a firm foundation of God's word, the other a plumb line of a life built straight and true to God's word. So what terms and conditions are you going to set your life on? Are you going to follow? I don't suggest you ask suburbia, because it's going to tell you, it's fine. The way you live in suburbia is fine. Look around you. Everyone in your neighborhood's doing it, living for comfort, buying what they want, insulating themselves from 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 the needy, focusing on achievement. It's the thing to do. Just look at the Joneses, right? And then you'll feel better. And so often, we just sort of start marching into the party line. One of my least favorite household chores or tasks is to help hang pictures. Don't know why. No particular reason. I have no great scar in my life from hanging pictures, but I dislike doing it. So if you ever come to our home, there's many, many blank walls. (laughs) But every once in a while, my wife decides that she's just going to do it anyway with or without me, so every once in a while I'll hear this plea from another room and I'll walk in and she'll say, can you help me for a second? And there she is holding up a large picture with her head kind of ducked so I can see the top because she wants me to see if it's straight. So she's got a hammer in this hand, nails out of her mouth, she's hanging, trying to hold this picture up straight, you know. And I take this opportunity, of course, to saunter in. <sighs> Look at it for a minute. Tilt my head. Say something witty like, well, if I tilt my head like this, it's straight. At which point my wife finds me fabulously hilarious and is really glad she married me at that moment. But you know what? When it comes to the terms and conditions of suburbia, instead of straightening the crooked picture of life, hung by suburbia, I find that we slowly, simply tilt our heads until it looks straight. And we walk around life with tilted heads, with these tilted terms and conditions, and we say, everything's straight. And you might think, well, don't we all look odd walking through suburbia with our heads tilted? Well, no, because so many people in our neighborhoods are walking through life with their heads tilted, too. And so we all walk around like this, going, oh yeah, this is normal. This is right. Nothing crooked about this. And we get comfortable and we get used to it until someone breaks into our lives whose head is on straight. And then suddenly we realize, wow, we've been living by the wrong terms and conditions. 
I submit to you this morning that we as Christians need to be those people. We need to be those people who in our neighborhoods have our head on straight. And that we don't live by the same terms and conditions of suburbia, but that we live by the terms and conditions that God has set out for us. That we live lives through our actions and our words and our care and our truth-telling that point people to Christ and to his terms and conditions for living. And when we do this, we'll not only find our own lives transformed, but we'll find the lives of those around us transformed. Because if you think about it, and if we can help people to think about it, and if I can get you to think about it, and if I can get me to think about it, we will begin to realize that the terms and conditions of suburbia are pretty silly. They're pretty ridiculous. Imagine, if you would, the final judgment, if the final judgment was based on the terms and conditions of suburbia. What would God ask us? Well, he would say, welcome. Did you live your life focused on personal advancement? Yeah, great. Did you have a lot of stuff? Yeah, perfect. How, uh, this is a tough one. Did you live a life of ease? Great. Were you completely risk-free and protected from any relationships that might be difficult? Great. And we hear that and we go, well, that's, that's nuts. I don't want my life to be characterized by the fact that I had a lot of stuff and I was very comfortable and I was protected from anyone who needed help. We see the ridiculousness of it when we hear it that way, don't we? And yet we so easily start living by it. And so do people around us. So if we can be Christians who live out by the word of, live our lives out by the word of God, then we can walk into our suburban lives with heads on straight and others will look at us and go, man, there's something richer and deeper and more significant about the way they're living. Maybe I ought to find out about this Jesus fellow. But even as we hear about the ridiculousness of the suburban lifestyle that we often live in, we can find ourselves saying, well, how did I get here? How did I get here? And the answer for most of us is, a little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. You didn't set out in life to own 80 pairs of shoes. That wasn't your life goal. But here you are. You didn't set out to own 200 DVDs or 1,000 CDs or, or 40 Xbox games. Better be careful. If I keep going, I'm going to eventually say something you own. He's thinking, just stop, just stop. Right? We don't set that as our goal, but we kind of get there little by little. You didn't write a personal life plan that says, I'm going to insulate myself as much as possible from the poor and the oppressed. You didn't write that in your life plan. You just sort of got there little by little. When you made your marriage vows to your spouse, you didn't look across them and say, I promise not to inconvenience you in any way as long as you don't inconvenience me. But sometimes we've gotten there, little by little. And we know that the conditions are unhealthy. We know they're ungodly. We know that they're wrong. We know that they're causing our house of our lives to be tilted. And yet, here we are. So what do we do? Well, first we repent. First we say to God, I'm sorry. I've gotten confused. 
I've gotten tricked by suburbia. I've started to live by this worldview that's opposed to yours, and I'm sorry. I repent of my sin of living by the rules and conditions of suburbia. And then after repentance, we accept the grace and forgiveness of God through Jesus. And this is an important step because the fact of the matter is, when God hangs his plumb line to your life, you will never be standing up straight enough. That's why we have Jesus in our lives. Because when we become a Christian, we say, God, I know there's nothing I can do to be righteous enough, and so I accept in my life the righteousness of Jesus. And so when that final judgment does come, the plumb line will be held up against the perfect life of Jesus because he'll stand in my place as he did on the cross. And so the goal of repentance is not that we wallow in guilt, but rather that we see our sin and we see the ways that we have failed and we say to to God, I ask you to forgive me in Christ and to see Christ's righteousness in my life. But then we don't go back to living the old suburban life, but we move forward with change. We repent, we accept the greatness of Christ in our lives, and then we try to grow something new. In a few moments, we're going to close this entire series with a worship time that's going to walk us right through those steps of repentance, of recognizing Christ, and of change. But I want to close with two final challenges about change. The first challenge is this. Don't stop short of what God might be wanting to do in your life. If I could return to the Leaning Tower of Pisa for a minute, I'm really not obsessed with this. But uh, back in 1964, the Italian government asked for help to fix the Leaning Tower of Pisa. But what they meant by fix was not to straighten it. Because after 900 years or so, it had become a pretty popular tourist place. Lots of money, lots of name recognition had come to Pisa because of the Leaning Tower. So they didn't want it uprighted. They just wanted it fixed enough that it wouldn't come crashing down. And so after decades of trying different things and working on uh, different ways of correcting it, it was closed in 1990, and then in 2001, it was reopened after having been secured and cabled and raised just 18 inches because it had kind of gone past the point of safety. So they raised it 18 inches so they could still have the Leaning Tower of Pisa just like they asked for. And I think the danger for us in our lives is that we too easily settle for 18-inch changes when God wants to make us upright. And so I encourage you to allow God to make big changes if he has them to make. But not just changes in behavior. We want changes of heart and of view and of worldview. And so the idea is not just to go in and minister to the poor once a month so you can check it out, check it off your list, but the idea is to develop a spirit of compassion. The idea is not only to just not buy stuff, but to develop a spirit of generosity. The idea is not just to get off the rat race of achievement, but to develop a spirit of humility. And so I challenge you to seek big ways that God wants to change your life. 
big ways that God wants to change your spirit. But the flip side of that challenge is this one. Don't wait to change something. Don't wait to change something. Some time ago, I was sitting at a restaurant with my wife. We were sitting next to each other. We were sitting across from another couple. The woman was sitting across from me. We were chatting nicely. Everything seemed to be going fine. When the woman across from me blurted out, all right, I got to do this. At which point, she began to come up out of her seat towards me, hands coming at my face. Now, I didn't know whether I was going to get punched or kissed, but either would have been a major problem. So she's coming up out of her booth towards me, hands coming towards my face. I am frozen with panic. No idea what to do at this point. Her hands come at my head, go past my head, and straighten a picture that was right behind my head. She sits back down, wipes herself off, and says, All right. I just couldn't deal with staring at that crooked picture all night. Well, fortunately, she was able to enjoy the rest of her meal. I, however, jumped straight out of my seat every time she reached for the water. So the fact of the matter is she just couldn't deal with that crooked picture anymore. And part of my hope with this series is you'll find something in your life where you just say, I'm just going to fix it. And you'll say, there's something in my life that I just can't deal with anymore. I can stop it right now. I can change it right now. And I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to wait till everything's in place. You know how we are. We're all planners, right? I want to plan it all out. I'm hoping there's something that you just say, it's crooked, and I'm going to fix it. There you go. I'm going to stop buying this, stop doing this, stop thinking this way. I'm just going to fix it. There's some things in our lives that are this long-term process, but I think there's all, all of us have things where we just say, I'm just going to fix that. I'm just going to straighten the picture right now. And so I encourage you to look for that in your life as well. For surely, surely in light of all that we have learned, surely you can change something.